back to normalcy for the 44th edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. Welcome in, everybody. My name is Tyler Mon. In New York City is Sam Dykstra. Recording at a normal time of day. Sam's in the office. It's all everything's back to full strength. Yeah, everything's good. Every, I'm back in uh, our normal recording area. Um, yeah, it, it feels good to be back in a room with windows. Did you, um, was it a racketeering case? What was it? I can't talk about it. <laughs> I can't, you can't keep trying this. Man! All right, whatever. Many, many cases, and I cannot tell you any of the details of, of any of them. Hey, so welcome in. It is the 44th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. Joining us on the show today, Minnesota Twins prospect Max Kepler will join us. A member of that new Top 100 list for 2016 is released by MLB.com last week. We'll talk about that here momentarily. Really excited to talk to Max Kepler, uh, a German-born prospect. He'd be one of the first uh, actually German prospects to make the major leagues in quite sometime Donald Lutz of the Cincinnati Reds was born in the U.S. grew up in Germany he made the big leagues but when you look at the list of guys who are from Germany it's mostly American kids who were born on an air base or here or there uh, kind of in their families transitional stages through Europe but Max Kepler really interesting story a German kid who fell in love with the game of baseball and now is one of the top prospects in all of baseball really excited to talk to Max Benjamin Hill will return to the show and as always you can find us uh, on iTunes at MILB.com as well. Uh, over on iTunes Podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show before the show. Leave us your comments on how we're doing as we get set for season number two of this podcast, which is coming up here uh, opening day in, man, just about two months uh, almost on the nose as we were recording this uh, on a Tuesday. So, hey, welcome back into the show. Sam, it's good to have you back. It's good to, yeah, it's good to it's have good. this normalcy. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm happy to be back into the swing of things uh it's now my second day back and everything everything is feeling good so i'm i'm ba- back ready for good uh, show back good for uh the good return which at this time we've traded places weather wise because i'm snowed in over at my mom's house but I don't, you know my mom i don't want to make her shovel snow whatever so i brought the dog we stayed over uh-huh. here and now we got like a foot and a half of snow here and last week i was making fun of you guys for your weather so whoops and now we don't have any snow it's like my fault it's a temperate 50 degrees really like it's already yeah. gone it's it's one of those things where you Weird. want to say like you know what I could get to, used to climate change if this is the way things are going to go. but then at the same point you're just like no <laughs> probably not because the problem living in New York City is the whole thing will be underwater yeah so that wouldn't really like work for on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder you're just like well you know that's you just wear a light jacket in February that's pretty nice. <laughs> So, hey, let's get rolling into it. Three strikes for episode number 44, a trade, a trade to discuss uh, that went down this past week, January 30th, it was, between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Brewers sending Major League shortstop Gene Segura and right-hander Tyler Wagner to the Arizona Diamondbacks for infield prospect Isan Diaz and big leaguers Aaron Hill and Chase Anderson. Uh, Isan Diaz had a fantastic season last year in the Pioneer League. He was a competitive balance draft pick. 2014 was a Pioneer League MVP last season. Um, he's, I guess, kind of the centerpiece of this trade, but there's a lot of stuff in this trade that doesn't involve guys in this trade. Yeah, well, the first thing that immediately came to everybody's mind is that when uh, Gene Segura was traded, that means you know the shortstop position for Milwaukee is now kind of open, and of course, everybody immediately wanted to slot in Orlando Arcia. Um, our breakout prospect of the year last year after he had a really, really good campaign in Biloxi, um, showed a lot of offensive potential. And everybody you talk to says, you know, he could be a potential gold glover someday. So everybody 
wants to just slide him right into there, have him skip over AAA Colorado Springs. Um, I guess it's my job or, you know, tons of people have done this on the internet already, but you have to pump the brakes on that a little bit. Uh, you know, the, the Brewers like what they have in Arcia. They want him to be their major league shortstop potentially as early as June, you know, once the, uh, super two concerns go away, but they're, they're going to let him get his time at triple a. I'm sure, uh, the, the GM of the team has already discussed that has already said, you know, this doesn't necessarily change what our plans are for Arcia. He, he'll start at Colorado Springs. I'm sure it'll be exciting for him to, to play there, play in the PCL, play in the high altitude, um, get to show off even higher numbers potentially, you know, in the PCL. But, uh, for our purposes, we want we want to talk about what this means for you know one of the game's best prospects, and again, you just have to pump the brakes on that a little bit. It's not as exciting to pump the brakes on it, but yeah, that is kind of the first yeah. thing that jumps in everybody's mind. Um, but this is uh, an interesting swap of pieces in this trade because Isan Diaz is a very talented player. He led the Pioneer League in extra base hits, doubles, total bases, slugging percentage, second in the league in home runs last year, third in RBIs, batted 360 and 68 games for rookie-level Missoula. Um, he's only 19. He's seen time up the middle in both spots on the infield. So he's a, an interesting talent that the Diamondbacks, um, in this trade i guess the he's so far off that it's kind of one of those moves that probably won't you won't see an impact for a while but um the diamondbacks let go of a guy who is a really good talent and again was a very recent draft selection of the diamondbacks yeah he was taken in the uh, collective balance round in 2014 um shout out actually he and i grew up in the same area um, not really? at he is six years younger than I am, but he went to, he was which means he's in, like a thousand years younger than the rest of us. Yeah. So he, he's from Springfield, <laughs> Mass. I'm from a couple towns over, um, him and I kind of bonded on that when we talked over, over a story last year, but you're right. He just had, you know, such great offensive numbers last year and already had the potential. Um, so he was starting to flash it a little bit, still a teenager. He's not going to turn 20 until May. Uh, so it, it, it seems like a lot to give up. Um, on the D-back side, just to get Gene Segura, who was at one point an all-star, but has not put up an on-base percentage higher than 300 either the last couple seasons, um, certainly looks as hit, as though his star is already kind of collapsing in on itself. Uh, you know, Diaz is still, there's tons of questions marks yet. You know, he still hasn't played a full season and all that, but he is an exciting talent. And, you know, the, the Brewers are certainly rebuilding and they'll slot him under there, let him have tons of years to develop, especially when they already have Arcia in the system um, and Jonathan Villar, you know, more immediately at shortstop. Uh, so the, they'll let him have all the time he needs. Uh, so it was an interesting move for the, the Brewers. They, they clear up a spot. They, they get another interesting talent and the, their rebuild continues. Strike two this week. The top 100 list from MLB Pipeline is out. And uh, Sam and I have talked about this at length before the list came out, but the list is now 100% fully released to all of you. Team rosters uh, for top 30s, the top 30 prospects in each organization, those will be coming out uh, as the month of February rolls on and into March and into spring training. But um, Sam's pick, Corey Seager, top prospect in baseball, is the new top prospect in baseball. Byron Buxton is number two. Lucas Giolito, number three. Julio Urias, number four. J.P. Crawford, number five. We talked about those guys a little bit last week because MLB Pipeline put together those really good stories of kind of the argument for each of them at number one. But, uh, I mean, I think this kind of is among the uh, the realm of what we expected when this came out. And the interesting thing is 
these guys at the top of this list probably going to have some major league impacts pretty soon but it goes to show you just how much talent came to the big leagues last year too when you look at this list and see okay well Yohan Moncada he's probably a little ways off at number seven last year of course spent a lot of time with Greenville Dansby Swanson last year was uh, a class a short season I mean coming right out of the draft new organization for him with the Braves so a lot of these guys are a ways back whereas last year it seemed like everybody when you came into the top 10 that was just a step before graduating to the big leagues yeah so I mean that's certainly good signs for all those guys I, I think you know joey gallo uh cory seager byron buxton those are all guys who are right there um probably going to start the year in the majors between those three gallo less likely than the others but tyler glass now probably going to join the majors at some point this year lucas giolito i think is certainly a candidate jp crawford you know the phillies would love to see him up there we already talked about arcia and urias you know he'll be starting out the year at okc um you know they'll be watching his innings a bunch but he he'll be a candidate to join the Dodgers as well so you know this is certainly setting itself up to be another cast of top 10 guys who we will be talking about at this time next year you can go to the last couple episodes of the show before the show podcast and listen to uh some of our discussion on the top prospects who we felt would be the top prospects who we liked most as the top prospects in baseball because we've covered the top 100 a lot we'll do it even more as the uh the team numbers get released the team lists get released over the next month or so and it just means that we're closer and closer and closer and ever closer to opening day which is fantastic uh strike three this week a very cool story josh jackson our good pal at milb.com put together a good one on uh really no matter how good you are if you are a top pitcher you're still going to have some nights where you go out and just wish that you had not woken up that morning. Um, <laughs> and that's one of the cool things about the game of baseball is it's not – and it's every sport, but baseball is so predicated on failure. It's not uh, an issue to the guys who are the greats in the game of baseball. And Josh did some really in-depth reporting. Tyler Glass now, Lucas Giolito, Jose De Leon featured in this story. Um it's tough to go out and, you know, have one of those days. But for guys, and it really shows you the maturity of these guys, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, and the the interesting thing of just the nature of being a starting pitcher is that you do this every five days. So it's not like, you know, a hitter puts up a golden sombrero. Okay, I get to come out tomorrow and try to work on that. It stews. So, you know, you have a bad outing and it's just going to sit there. Um, and, and I think that it kind of works its way into these types of stories because these guys just remember the bad outings so much more because they were just sitting there and ruminating on them for so long as opposed to if we were to talk to a hitter about a day they went over four with four strikeouts, they might not recall it as as well as these guys did. Uh, some of the just more interesting, interesting quotes in here. Uh, I really, really like this one from Jose De Leon. Uh, he was talking to Josh about you know some tough times he had. Um, but specifically, he wanted to bring up his time in Ogden the first time he went through in 2013. He made five starts. He had a 12.10 ERA, <laughs> which is incredibly rough. He gave up five home runs in 19 and a third innings. He hit five batters in that same span. Uh, guys were hitting 380 off of him. Uh, you know, so he was just sitting there thinking, like, this is the, this was his first season. You know, within the Dodgers system, he was taking 24th round that year, not exactly a high pick, and just comes out, gets shellacked with the Raptors. Uh, and the the quote, you know, now we know him as as a top 50 pitcher. You know, he has electric stuff, has worked his way into becoming one of the t- big three, as they call them in Dodgers prospect land, between him, Urias, and Seager. 
Uh, but he had this quote for Josh that I really, really loved. He says, if something bad happens, I just think about how nothing can be worse than the things that went on in the Pioneer League. So one thing I think a lot of these guys have shown is just the maturity of that. This is a teachable moment. This is something that you know has happened. There's nothing I can change about it. Let's move forward from it. Um, and, and in De Leon's case, he just remembers, let's make sure this is the absolute low moment of my career. And it has been. And what he's built since that time in Ogden has been really, really impressive. It's a really cool story, if a very uncomfortable story, I would imagine, for these guys to have to go back and relive some of these things. Uh, Tyler Glass now talks about a start that he had uh, for AAA Indianapolis in which he got one out and was just awful. Six runs on five walks and a double. Um, and one of the cool quotes, I mean, you talked about De Leon's quote. I really like Tyler Glass now who says in this story, quote, being a pitcher and being a really analytical person sometimes don't mix. When you're in a situation like that in your head thinking you're not going to be able to get out of it. And I think it's neat to hear a pitcher admit to that. That sometimes you hear coaches talk about this a lot. We do a lot of interviews with coaches and managers. And they say this about certain guys. When you think too much, it can be a detriment. When you're smart, it can be a detriment to you because you think, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with this? What is the problem with my delivery? What's this mechanical issue? Instead of just going out and thinking, all right, I got to get this fixed. Here's how. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. And Josh asked him, how do you get out of it? And he said, Tyler Glass now responded, I don't know, walk five and half an inning and get pulled, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get you off the mound. That's one. Had to do it. Uh, but that is a really cool story. So check that out on MILB.com as well. And uh, that is strike three. A couple other news items we want to get to real quick. Uh, speaking of former top prospects, Jesse Biddle, who is the top prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies organization through all of 2013, has really run into a rough couple of seasons. Had a, a weird illness, was diagnosed with pertussis at one time. Um, that was toward the middle of the 2013 season. That really dogged him toward the end of that year. Struggled that year. Really struggled the next season in 2014. He suffered a concussion in a hailstorm while he was with Double A Redding. Uh, was removed from competition for a mental break. Then had some elbow uh, tenderness, soreness at the end of the 2014 season. Pitched through it in 2015. End of 2015, Tommy John surgery. Now he's been DFA'd by the Phillies. So uh, Philadelphia native Jesse Biddle, former first round pick, does not look like. The Phillies are worried about losing him to a claim because he is recovering from Tommy John surgery, but he'll have to go through waivers. So kind of a, a strange story there and a really rough patch for Jesse Biddle over the last couple of seasons. So hoping for the best for him going into 2016 and his recovery. And two very difficult stories for us to, to discuss and, and really have to talk about it all. Uh, but two times over the last week and a half now, prospects have been killed in uh, car accidents in the Dominican Republic. Astros prospect Jose Rosario was killed um, on January 20th. 24th and on January 30th the Baltimore Orioles lost infield prospect Ramon Ramirez. It's not the same Ramon Ramirez uh, who's spent some time at the major league level in a triple-A with the Baltimore system. This is a 23-year-old infield prospect, but um, just a couple of really tough stories. Uh, very, very young kids. Ramirez, 23 years old. Rosario was 20 years old, a right-handed pitcher in the Astro system. So our thoughts with both of those uh, organizations and, of course, the friends and families of the two guys lost because that is just awful um, to have to write those stories, period, and especially to do it multiple times in a week. Um, so our thoughts 
thoughts with those. Uh, and that will wrap up our opening segment for the 44th edition of the show before the show podcast. Uh, when we move on, Max Kepler, one of the top prospects in all of baseball, ranked number 44 overall coming into the 2016 season. He will join the show to talk about what it was like growing up and falling in love with baseball as a young kid in Germany, coming over to the United States to get his professional career started and being a part of that just absolutely packed 2015 Chattanooga Lookouts roster and a breakout season for him. Max Kepler joins the show next. Uh, we picked a very, very good episode for our latest guest to join the Show Before the Show podcast from Minor League Baseball because in the brand new Top 100 MLB.com prospect rankings for the 2016 season, Max Kepler is ranked number 44 overall, and the Twins prospect joins the 44th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. Max, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Just just another gorgeous day out in California. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good place to be. And, uh, I mean, you're going to be going from one very sunny state in California to another in Florida really soon um, here coming up in the next few weeks. How excited are you to get going again? I mean, I know at this point in the off season, it really feels like it's the time where everybody starts getting that itch, that it's enough BP, enough, you know, running and doing this stuff. Now you just want to get back down to it. Yeah, um, I'm heading down there pretty soon, and I'm itching to get on the field with all the guys. Um, and, you know, this getting to that whole whole routine of things again um and yeah i can't wait i can't wait well, Max, let's look at uh, your 2015 season um, to get things started for this. This is a, a breakout season in a way that big prospects have breakout seasons, um, but in a way that I think few people can really match. You had a really, really good uh, start to your professional career. 2014 was very good at Fort Myers. You make an appearance in the Arizona Fall League. But 2015 is massive. Uh, you win the Southern League MVP award, 112 games for AA Chattanooga. Um, what does last year feel like now that you're a few months removed from it? You can look back on just what a huge campaign that was for you. Um, to me, it's just a great memory, you know, in my career. And I always try and, you know, look ahead of me and not behind. Um, but, yeah, I, I had so much fun with all the guys that year. Um, and just a great experience, uh, you know, learning from every, from everybody that I played with so far. And um, thankfully, you know, we, we did a lot of winning again last year. And that's what I'm looking forward to this year again. Um, and that's that's mainly what my goal is every year is just to, you know, win. Just get a lot of wins in um, and stay healthy. And, Max, what kind of went into that breakout that you had last year? It looked like, you know, you had a little bit of power. You added a, a lot more um, stolen bases than previous years. Uh, you know, your walk versus strikeout rate was phenomenal. You know, what kind of work went into it, specifically working with Doug Mankiewicz in Chattanooga and just the guys in the twin system um, what kind of offensive work did you put in last year? I might say mechanically, uh, hitting-wise, I built in a leg kick, which um, I never really worked with. Um, and my hitting coach, Chad Allen, uh, and Doug uh, really enforced that, that that season, you know, just to be more aggressive. And along with that came a leg kick. Um, and that also boosted my confidence in a way, you know. Uh, I kind of felt com- very comfortable with the play for the first time in, in a while. And um, it was all due to that leg kick, which, you know, had me very confident at the plate. And I think baseball, you know, it's just a, it's mostly a com- comfortability thing. Whenever you're comfortable, stuff goes well, and you you tend not to think about everything. Like, you know, most guys try and overthink things, overanalyze things when stuff's going bad. So I just hope to go into this year again as confident as I did last year. Um, and, yeah, let let things play out. 
And, and when did that comfort with the leg kick finally kick finally kick in? Pardon the pun. Was was it immediately when you know it was introduced to you, or was it at a certain point in the season where it kind of felt easy for you again? When did that kind of you know kind of kick into gear? Um. Well, we were kind of tinkering with it for the first couple of weeks, and I would be going from from my uh, my past you know step in pause hitting stance to uh, the leg kick, just you know just testing things out. Um, and then one week I would just rake the whole week with the leg kick, and after that week I decided you know I have to stick with this because it's really working for me, and I was seeing the ball jump off my bat like I never had before. Um, and yeah, it just it, it worked for me that week, and from then on, I was really believing in it, and that really helped me out. Max, how much of an impact does it have to be surrounded by the talent that you are surrounded by every day in the Twin System? I mean, that roster was so loaded at the beginning of last year, and even through last season. But I mean, Byron Buxton is there, Miguel Sano is there, Adam Brett Walker the second is there. I mean, you guys from top to bottom in that lineup are so stacked. How fun is that? Not only going to the ballpark, having a good season on your own, but being able to be around guys like that who have such good season or have such high ceilings and talent levels. It, it definitely spoils, it spoils you as a teammate. You know, it's like a, a showcase every game. Um, just getting to watch every trait of every player uh, that is just, you know, talented to the top. And, um, yeah, it's just fun to watch, you know. If if you're not doing well one day, you can always be able to count on another guy on your team to, you know, make up for it. And with all the, the players we had on our team last year, every single one of them, um, it was just always – I was just always itching to get to the field and just have another fun day at the yard. Yeah, and at the end of the season, you get rewarded with a trip to the majors. You know, you get to play three games there. Kind of not your typical September call-up. You got called up September 22nd. Uh, you know, what was that process like, you know, just going from thinking your season's probably over to, oh, by the way, we want you in the majors and just being there for a couple of games, you know, being back with those guys like Sano and Buxton. You know, what was that atmosphere like for you? Uh, it was it was tough at first when I didn't get the call uh, uh, September first. You know, I, I was kind of anticipating something. Um, people were telling me, you know, you might get that call on the first. Um, when it didn't come, it was just all about focusing on stuff I had in front of me at the time, and that was the playoffs coming up. And um, you know, I had to watch all the guys that I played in the fall league with come up on the first, and you know, get their major league debuts in. Um, but at the time, it was just, you know, I, I had to focus on, like I said, the stuff in front of me, which was hard. But uh, I got my head straightened out. And, yeah, I mean, and I got rewarded for all that uh, at the end of the playoffs. And it was it was a night to remember. One of the uh, really cool things about prospects that we get to talk to is learning about guys' backgrounds. And Max's background is different from basically anybody we've ever had on the show before. Uh, Max was born in Berlin. Max, give us your full name. What is your full, like, legal name that's on, like, a, a birth certificate or a document? <laughs> Maximilian Anthony Kepler Rozitsky. Okay, wow. so, like, not like, you know, Tom Smith. Uh, so, um, but this is one of the coolest stories among not just top prospects, but really any prospect in all of baseball. Um, Max was born in Berlin in 1993, uh, grew up there as the son of, and this is very cool. And when I first read it, it was on Wikipedia and I was like, well, I wonder if that's actually true. And then I found it through an MLB story, but your parents are both professional ballet dancers. 
Yes, my, my dad's still teaching and my mom's retired. That's awesome. So, like, your parents get you into that and they get you into sports and stuff as a kid. What was it about baseball that drew you? Your mom is American-born. Uh, your father is of Polish descent. Is that right? Yeah. So what was it about baseball, then, that spoke to you as a kid and really made you want to get into it? Um, well, my mom, being from Texas, uh, she had me introduced to a little league that was um, – that came together with the school I went to, uh, John F. Kennedy School in Berlin. And at the time, it was between uh, – I had to make decisions between soccer, baseball, tennis, track, and I think swimming. And it came down to then soccer and baseball. And my dad was all for, for soccer, being from Poland and Europe where, you know, <laughs> soccer rules. <laughs> and my mom was pushing me towards the baseball, you know. And then, um, I don't know, I just – I just there's something that I really – Every every day in and out, um, I wanted to be on the baseball field instead of the soccer field, and people frowned about upon that in, in Europe. And um, but for some reason, that pushed me more. I just wanted to, you know, be different and play a different game than you know everybody else in that country. And I wanted to go abroad and see what the U.S. had to offer in baseball. And luckily, that all worked out. And I'm thankful for for the path it's it's given me so far. And kind of describe how you were kind of found by, by the Twins when they originally signed you and that whole process going from, you know, like Tyler was talking about, a, a guy in Germany. This isn't the normal, like, draft process. What, what was that process like just getting into Pro Bowl? Um, well, you know, you kind of are oblivious to all the, the scouting and all the uh, showcases in Europe because they aren't really – they're not really promoted that much in Europe. Um, but whenever there are scouts, uh, someone would – give me a heads up that there is and you know at the time when I was 15 14 whenever they were there I, I didn't really think twice about scouts but I was just there to have fun uh but yeah once I once I turned 16 uh I started to realize things and um you know that there's actually future behind just having fun every day on the field and yeah it became more serious and once you once you did come over you know was there any kind of cultural um, transition that you need to make, like you said, your mom's from Texas, so you know I'm, I'm sure you knew stuff about America. Probably been here a couple times, but you know, going from a, a kid in Germany to you know playing baseball professionally every day, you know, and starting the Gulf Coast League and Appalachian leagues, you know, what was that like, just culturally? Um, well, I got to visit the states every summer, a summer vacation um, with my family. Um, but the biggest change to me was. Uh, probably just the weather, the humidity in Florida that I had to battle. And uh, after that, every every other place I went to was fun and a great experience. Um, it was also tough going to high school uh, and trying to go to instructs at the same time where I had to take online classes after, after each day um, at the yard. Um, but I dealt with it and it paid off. Max, let me uh, ask you this. As somebody who grew up, um, you know, playing a sport that's not a necessarily a mainstream sport, and we should say there's some very impressive uh, baseball infrastructure in Germany. There were WBC qualifiers held there in 2012. Uh, there's some really, really good facilities. There are some very talented players in the leagues over there. It's one of the, the really good European powers. The Netherlands, obviously, Italy, Germany's right there. France has had some success. But if you were talking to a kid who was like yourself, um, who's at that age where you're trying to, trying to have to pick a sport and, and see which way it goes, 
shows, um, if a kid wanted to pick baseball, what would you tell them to be mindful of coming into, you know, trying to play a professional career in the U.S.? I mean, I know for so many guys who come from markets that aren't necessarily baseball markets, you don't get the same amount of at-bats. You don't get the same amount of innings, the same amount of live BP or ground balls hit at you or whatever it is. What would you tell a kid who was kind of in your same position, you know, 10 years ago? I'll tell them to uh, to be patient, you know. Baseball is a game of failure, and um, it can get very frustrating at times. And, yeah, patience is, is key, especially if you're um, an international signing out of Europe because, you know, you're going to have to pick up a lot of experience to get where you want to be. Um, I still am. I'm going to pick up experience every day of, you know, the career of this, of, of this career. Um, but, yeah, patience is definitely something you need. Otherwise, uh, stuff can turn out poorly for you. Okay, Max, uh, according to MLB.com, fluent in English, German, and Polish. So if you have to say, my name is Max Kepler, and I play baseball for the Minnesota Twins in Polish, give it to us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kind of caught me off guard there. Not on the spot. You're not on the spot at all. All right. Yeah, yes, Max Kepler, I baseball in Polish. Holy cow. This is awesome. This has been like one of our coolest interviews. Max, I think you're our first, uh, yeah, you're our first uh, ever person to explore a different language on the podcast, I think. Just breaking barriers all over the place. Yeah, so this is good. <laughs> Certainly Polish at the Absol- period. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we would have gotten that in otherwise. Max, this has been great, man. We cannot thank you enough. Uh, you've been one of the guys we've been excited to talk to for a long time. This has been outstanding. Yeah, thank you very much, Max. Awesome. No, thank you, guys. Show before the show podcast returns to full strength. Finally, this week it's like we're coming off of a, we're coming off of a shorthanded opportunity. Uh, Benjamin Hill rejoins the show for the first time. What feels like a decade. Welcome back, pal. How are you? Hey, it's great to be back. You know, Sam goes on jury duty, and uh, I end up not getting on the show. I'm not sure how that happens, but Sam's your agent for the yeah, show. Yeah, it's all it's all my fault. That's what we figured so, out. I will take credit for it. <laughs> not credit, but you know fault it really felt like we were we were recording um you know like if we had all been invaded by aliens and we had to record like a a resistance podcast that's what it felt like the last couple weeks with sam was like we had to wait until he was back in his house and it was like late at night when we were recording it was a very it's a very strenuous couple of weeks but everything's back to normal now i feel good about it thank god for that (laughs) (laughs) so uh it's been three weeks i guess since we talked a lot has happened since then and let's start things off benjamin hill with a cool story that kind of um plays on one of the stories that you had last season this one came out on january 22nd um headline creating optimal schedules a tricky task a little bit of backstory um the international league was a subject of a story like this but it was kind of the the analog version of this story and this is the digital version of the story if you will um an 86 year old vice president in the international league who spends about 200 hours a year putting together the league schedule you came out with that story in july it was one of my favorite stories of last year this is kind of the new age version of that story yeah right um when i visited norfolk this past summer i got to talk to dave rosenfield and talk to a a legendary executive an octogenarian on how he gets how he makes the international league schedule every year how complex that is when you take into you know consideration all the things that you need to take into consideration whether you know not being able to travel more than 500 miles at a time uh, mandatory off days um, you know dates on the schedule that teams need or really want to be home or away based on what's going on in their market um, et cetera et cetera imbalanced divisional schedules it's a really complex task um, I did enjoy talking to a, a, a veteran of the game on how he did it with pencils and erasers and, uh, you know, as he always told me, brute force. 
Um, but yeah, last month I returned to the same topic, minor league schedule making, and kind of did, yeah, as you said, this is the digital version to uh, to the analog approach that's really been the only option in minor league baseball. Um, students within Johns Hopkins University, within their Whiting School of Engineering, um, applied math students have teamed up with a couple of faculty members with an interest in minor league baseball, and one of whom is a co-owner of the Hagerstown Suns, Tony DeBurra, and I hope I'm saying his name right. But they have launched this project in which John Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins, it's very hard to say the <laughs> S in yeah, Johns. Yeah, I agree. Johns Hopkins University, they are now creating minor league schedules they've created last year they did uh in 2015 they did new york penn league and they're doing new york penn league again in 2016 as well as the um south atlantic league and uh what's the other one there southern Southern. league and uh the international league you know where dave rosenfield had been doing it for you know pretty much half a century they're going to do it in 2017 so this is really i think you the next stage of minor league schedule making whether it's entirely through johns hopkins or not remains to be seen but using applied mathematics using very complex equations using the principle of combinatorial optimization you know finding an optimal object from a finite set of it's solutions a hobby of mine and- also yeah, <laughs> you know, running that all <laughs> through the computer, uh, doing all those things, it is, uh, I think, the the way of the future. And it was kind of interesting to talk to people involved in that project. And uh, I think uh, minor league fans, or at least a certain subset of fan, would really enjoy reading about how that sort of thing comes together. Yeah, and, and kind of in layman's terms, you know, how does this kind of work? Is it just plugged into a computer and there's a formula and it's just spat out in five minutes? Or is it much more complicated than that. How, how, what is the process for this exactly? Well, I, I think what you said is both correct and obviously a huge oversimplification. Sure. Um, it's not something – I don't have a mathematical background. That's why I, I'm a writer. So you know, in talking to all these people involved with the project, I was a little you – know, whenever they got too technical, I was kind of like, well, what? <laughs> you know, it, was, it was very hard to explain. But I talked to one of the students involved and I think he gave me a quote that maybe is – the most succinct I can get or I can give you right now, and uh, Noah Presler, a undergraduate uh, mathematics student involved in uh, making these schedules, he said, we start with a template as that's the way we process the information that the league gives us, what slots you can play in, the length of the season, and reserve dates home or away. After that, we go through the constraints. You can't have a home stand of a certain length. You have to play a team a certain number of times. You can't travel more than 500 miles. Once we have all that, we take all of it and turn it into a giant math equation. The equation is on the order of magnitude of tens of thousands of math equations. We write algorithms to solve it, and the time it takes for the computer to solve it can be as long as five days. Et cetera, et cetera. Then they put new constraints on it, try to make it more and more optimal. Um, so I don't know. Do you guys understand that? Yeah. It, it and makes it, some sort of sense. Yeah. More than anything, that I think even makes the mind-blowing aspect of a human being doing it that much more expansive. I mean, the the idea that a person can sit down and do the things that, you know, I mean, for so long, there was a husband and wife team that did major league schedules for something like 30 years, I think. It just, the idea of people sitting down and doing that, when nowadays you would think, I just plug that into a system and it happens, is insane to me. Yeah, and and even so, it still takes a lot of work and, and manpower even to do it in this new high-tech way. Um, yeah, to compare it how it used to be, yeah, that husband and wife team that you mentioned in MLB, I watched a documentary on them recently, kind of in preparation for this article, a short documentary, and there was a quote in there that was along the lines of each schedule or perhaps a decade's worth of schedules 
uh, presents as many possibilities as there are atoms in the universe. So to think that humans are doing that with no really outside technological capabilities by necessity, basically since the advent of organized baseball, is uh, pretty impressive. And it's only getting more and more complex, the things you need to factor in to make a schedule successful. It's a really cool story up on the site right now. That is the latest edition, the edition of Minoring in Business. Uh, the latest edition of Batting Around has some cool, uh, a cool leadoff item, which got a lot of traction, a lot of notoriety last week. Uh, the AA Frisco Rough Riders in the Texas League have an idea for maybe the coolest ballpark feature in all of America. Ben, explain. Yeah, they want to, uh, you know, it's not a definite that it's going to happen, but the Rough Riders. Uh, want to put a lazy river in the outfield, basically um, encompassing a lot of the area from right field, you know, snaking all the way, you know, close to center field. And uh, they have a pool there right now, which is a rarity in minor league baseball. But you know, there's teams across minor league baseball that have a pool. They want to expand it and create a full-on lazy river, uh, so you'd be, you know, just drifting along right in the outfield during the game, watching the game. Um, projected images on waterfalls that are set up uh, behind the lazy river itself. Um, you're right; it got a lot of traction. You know, last week a lot of blogs picked this up just nationwide in that kind of like, "this is the coolest idea ever" kind of blog hyperbole. I don't know if it's the coolest idea ever, but it's pretty cool and it hasn't been done before. And um, you know, Frisco Rough Riders—they lead the Texas League in attendance. They're under new ownership that kind of has the the wherewithal and the willpower to get this done. They do have some city uh, money to work with potentially from uh, leftover in their budget from last year for renovations they did last year. So I would not be surprised if we see this happen and minor league baseball has a lazy river. People uh, freak out about how cool it is, and then while the purists are like, oh, man, one more thing we don't need as we watch the game we love slip away. So what <laughs> What kind of stands in the way, though? It just sounds like every – you know, the purists aside, everybody's kind of on board, but why – why hasn't this been an announced thing that's definitely going to happen yet? Well, I think uh, funding is, is part of it. They they had $6 million budget. It's a city-owned ballpark, and they had a $6 million budget from the city last year to um, do renovations. They spent about $5 million of that. Uh, with the excess money, I know some of it has to go this season to the expanded netting, which a lot of teams are doing you know, for safety reasons. And then they probably wouldn't have enough money left over to do the full Lazy River plans. And I think from there it becomes you know, how much money they're willing to put in what the final costs uh, come into, um, I'm not exactly sure. I probably will end up talking with someone from the team about it in in the near future, and uh, getting the real the real inside dirt, the 411 on the lazy river. Spent a few seasons working under Chuck Greenberg, and I can tell you that if he has the uh, the idea in his head and it seems feasible to get it done, it'll probably get done. And the pictures are very, very cool. And uh, I, I just – if I was in a raft in an inner tube in the lazy river, I think my danger, my fear would be falling asleep due to the laziness of the river and then getting clocked in the noggin with a home run ball. But, you know, that's a, it's a risky take in a lazy river in the outfield. It is the risky take in the Lazy River in the outfield, and uh, I don't I don't want you to get hurt if that happens, but I kind of want that to happen. Yeah. It would it would be extraordinarily comical. We can all agree on that. And you uh, get a free souvenir out of it. And that's true. Yeah, unless some you know punk kid dives in, takes the ball away, which is very plausible if you got clocked in the head with it. Um, I'm just building up these elaborate fantasies of how I would get injured at a Frisco Rough Riders game. Uh, ben, yeah, I've note. spent so many hours uh, fantasizing about <laughs> getting injured at a Frisco Rough Riders game. Uh, final note of the week, uh, the Columbia Fireflies full identity is out. 
out. They released home, road, and two alternate jerseys. And uh, this is a a very neat identity in that it's a lot more conservative than the things we've seen in recent seasons. And I really like the the uniform look. They had uh, some you know models at the the announcement wearing the uniforms themselves. They also released some artwork depicting the uniforms. Um, the name is it kind of comes across as being a little wacky minor league name, but this is kind of one of the more uh, buttoned up identities I feel like that has been released in recent seasons. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Buttoned up, buttoned down. It depends on what style you put your jersey on. I suppose. A pullover, but maybe. A pullover, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I would agree. Uh, even though Fireflies kind of fits into the 21st century industry dynamic of a somewhat goofy name, it's it's no you know uh, Chihuahuas or uh, Rubber Ducks or something like that. But it's it's a very minor league name, and uh, Fireflies. It, they do have an alternate jersey, obviously. That's you know, neon yellow. But on the whole, this is a pretty conservative, clean slick look the firefly itself you know is not uh doesn't have huge bug eyes and he's not swinging a bat or carrying a bindle stick or all the things that uh <laughs> you know the, these uh anthropomorphic characters do these days um so i, I like it it's a, it's a pretty simple and clean design it has some glow in the dark elements some obviously not in a, a huge over the top way and uh you know they joined the defunct Casper Ghosts is the only minor league teams to incorporate glow in the dark into uh, into their uniforms. There was one very fired up guy on social media who was responding to uh, people who were praising these uniforms and logos, including myself, saying, have you ever seen a firefly with a tail? No, this is dumb. So one guy is very <laughs> upset that they have gone with the, the look of the actual glow and formed that into a tail. So just keep that in mind, one guy. Yeah, it looks like a tail, but I think it's just supposed to be the... Uh, it's the glow, part, it's a firefly! Yeah, it's the part of the firefly that exactly. actually glows. It's the fire. Yeah, it's the <laughs> it's fire. The fire, as I understand science. If I understand science correctly. Tail, it's just a fly. Exactly. Yeah. And nobody, there's no teams named the flies. That's lame. It's like a Jeff Goldblum-owned team. Um, there's a weird 80s reference for you. Benjamin Hill is <laughs> on Twitter. I was right Twitter. there with you, man. You were just winging it. <laughs> He's uh, okay. at Ben's Viz on Twitter. You can follow the blog. There's all kinds of stuff on the blog right now, and some of my favorite uh, Ben content from over the years comes from posts like these, which are the Return to the Road posts, uh, which is uh, dedicated a lot to the off-the-field and outside-the-ballpark stuff that Ben encountered and his road trips throughout the 2015 season. And uh, you started playing the 2016 road trips yet? Uh, in my mind, certainly, but Man. in terms of really uh, fleshing it out and doing the uh, the actual legwork, I, I prefer to think about the work I should do rather than doing it, and that's where I am right now. With okay, I can, I can get behind that. But that is crazy that we are that close to uh, planning 2016 road trips. I know, I know. I, I feel like I... Sir. And writing about those trips all the way through November and revisiting some of the non-ballpark stuff now and then having the next season just bam right there. It's a good thing overall, but it is eerie sometimes how quickly it all goes. It's a metaphor for our very existences. Wow, this, this took a turn. We're getting so <laughs> deep. We're getting so deep in this episode. Uh, welcome back. It's good to talk to you, Ben. Hey, good to talk to you guys too. Max Kepler and Benjamin Hill are guests on the 44th edition of the show before the show podcast. You can follow them both on Twitter. Ben is at Ben's Biz. Max Kepler is at Keplaroni, like a nice pasta dish. And a huge thanks to those two guys. It's really cool to get a chance to talk to Max Kepler. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. That, as I said during the interview, you know, we don't get to talk Polish much. Yeah, no, we podcast, don't. So. We don't have a lot of Polish in this podcast. Yeah, so much. as somebody who grew up in the polka capital of New England, but is not Polish, <laughs> I, uh, 
I appreciate it made me feel a little bit at home. That was cool. So uh, big thanks to Max. And uh, again, you can follow him on Twitter. He is at Keplaroni. And that is going to do it for the 44th edition of the show. Uh, you are, there's a good chance you're listening to this on Thursday. We're recording on Tuesday. Good chance you're tuned in as we release it on Thursday morning, which means you are listening to this podcast two weeks exactly before the first major league pitchers and catchers report to spring training for organizations. There's a handful of teams who will have their report dates on the 18th. Um, through the next few days, the rest of pitchers and catchers show up. Position players start reporting on the 22nd ish. And these are, you know, all kind of rough dates. I mean, tons of guys are already at their respective uh, levels and their respective complexes, but that is like the oasis in the middle of the desert. When you finally see that the, uh, the day, Dates are coming up that close, so um, we're fired up about that, and uh, we got some good stuff coming up to the site. Sam's got a story that is up now, another tool shed piece, which are some of my favorites that are up on the site. What's this latest one about? Yeah, so this one's about uh, Reds prospect Robert Stevenson. A couple podcasts ago, we brought on uh, two guys as part of the Reds rebuild, Jeff Grappe and Eric Chigailo, and I wanted to touch base with Robert Stevenson. You know, we talked about Top 100 coming out this week. He's again up you know, near the top, he's in the thirties. Um, so once again, you know, his, his his star is not lost its shine. Um, but you know, now that the reds have added, added some pieces, Cody Reed, Jose Peraza, I wanted to talk to Stevenson about how he sees himself kind of fitting in there. Um, and you can read it in the piece, but he talked about how he's kind of excited because now as part of a rebuild, younger guys like himself get more opportunities and how he he's, and, looking to enter camp to win a big league job. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm sure they're going to send him back. Triple A Louisville um, let his service time. Uh, don't start his service time until they're absolutely sure he's ready. Um, he only had five starts, I believe, last year at Louisville, so they wanted to get him more time there. But it sounds, sounds like he's genuinely excited about, for the, about the direction the uh, Cincinnati system is taking. So be on the lookout for that. It's up on the site now at MILB.com, and uh, that will do it for this edition of the show. You can find us on the iTunes Podcasts app on your phone or wherever you get your podcasts through your iOS device. You can find us there where the Minor League Baseball Podcast rate, review, and subscribe. And you can go to MILB.com slash podcast, find all of our past episodes, timestamps, our little stories that accompany each uh, episode on the site so you can figure out when our interviews are and all that kind of stuff in each edition of the show. And, uh, yeah, Sam. Good to have you back in the office. This has been a good one. Yeah, no, this was a very, very good episode. I'm very <laughs> proud of the way this has worked out. And uh, looking forward to more good stuff next week. Max Kepler, thanks again to him. And uh, go follow Benjamin Hill and read the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And until next week, um, we're counting it down. Less than two weeks to go until pitchers and catchers start reporting to Florida and Arizona. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy. Enjoy.